My belief in God feels like a ball balancing on a triangle. Trying to hold up the questions of life. Well, hello everyone and happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. So I have to be honest, I wasn't 100% convinced that Derek was in his right mind when he asked if I would preach today's sermon. If you know me well, you probably don't choose the adjective fun to describe me. For those who don't know me well, let me explain just a bit. Instead of being the life of the party, I'm more likely to be asleep at the party. There's photographic evidence of this. My idea of a really good time is a long hike, a long book, and a 9 p.m. bedtime. No one has ever put my phone number in a bathroom stall because this is not the girl you call for a good time. I sit on beaches and airplanes, porches in the woods, on couches in the car, even at restaurants alone, and I read. That's my idea of fun. Now, because this is Mother's Day and because this is true for me, I also want to share that much of the fun of my life has centered on family. As a child, I remember some of the most fun I had were long summer days at my grandparents' house. My grandpa built me in my own little playhouse and my grandma made me dress up clothes and I would play Little House on the Prairie from morning until night. Sari on the Prairie is what my grandpa would call me. I played alone in my own little world and it was wonderful fun. And I grew up and friends and sports were fun, but they were never more fun than a camping trip with my family or a picnic at the pond at the family farm or canoeing down the Clarion River together in the fall. Spending time with my family is fun. And let me tell you, that expanded to a dizzying degree when I married Nate and began experiencing fun with his family also. Now I'm probably the least fun person on both sides of the family by most definition. So Maybe I'm not contributing loads to their fun, but they certainly contribute to mine. To be honest, I'm not sure I can take any more. So thank you, family, for loading my life with so much fun. And you all know when I've had enough because I'm hiding with a book somewhere. But listen, all of us have our own ideas of fun. Some of you be, might be more like me and others are more like Nate. We might be really at two ends of a spectrum, but all of us are heavily influenced by the world around us. Our culture begins teaching us at birth what is fun and exciting and pleasurable. Some of us are more inclined to find fun in any random, unexpected, spontaneous moment. Some of us go to extremes to find the ultimate fun and thrilling experiences. Some of us find the most fun doing all the things that we're told not to do. Rebellion is good fun for some. One of my favorite podcasts is That Sounds Fun. It's hosted by author and speaker Annie F. Downs. She interviews all kinds of people, and she ends every single interview by asking, what sounds fun to you? And it's funny because some people are apologetic. They think their fun sounds kind of lame, like a Saturday with nothing scheduled or just a cup of tea and a fire. And Annie reminds everyone every time that they're allowed to have their own ideas of fun. We all need fun, and we all need to know where to look for fun. Now, all this talk about fun is going somewhere, I promise. We're in a sermon series right now that explores some of the doubts and questions around Christianity. And today's sermon is titled, I Believe in God, But I Just Want to Have Fun. This hits at the idea that fun and Jesus are at odds, that there's this general misunderstanding in the world that if you want to have fun in this life, you don't go looking too deeply into religion. And specifically, that Christianity is all about the rules that take away the fun of life. That if you were to get really serious about following Jesus, that means you'll have to settle for boring. But I think this reveals a lack of understanding about fun and a lack of understanding about God. The big idea we'll work around today is that without God, life may be fun, but it won't be fulfilling. And as we unpack that, 
let's start with a bit of a story. There was once an astonishingly beautiful garden. The gardener designed and created it as a place of beauty and stillness, peace and wholeness. It was a place of pleasure and of purpose. It had everything needed to achieve this. It had rivers, every tree and plant and flower, every variety of bird, insect and animal. The people and all the living creatures in this garden were fully satisfied. Their lives were complete and fulfilled. It was perfect. But an enemy came to the garden and he hated the gardener and he hated that the gardener garden was so perfect and that everything living there was so content and fulfilled. And so the enemy whispered lies to the woman in the garden. Is this really enough? Are you truly satisfied? Don't you want more? And the people whose hearts had been complete and fulfilled by the gardener's perfect garden suddenly doubted the gardener, doubted the truth, and turned toward the lies. Maybe the gardener had withheld something good, something better. Maybe the life they were living in this perfect garden couldn't fulfill them. The story of Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of the garden and the gardener, the creator of the world, God himself. Genesis 3 is the story of the fall, the lie that tempted Eve, the doubt that led Adam and Eve to sin, and the consequences that drove them from that perfect garden into an existence of striving, pain, toil, and death. The enemy had convinced them that their experience of the garden would be better without the gardener. And every single person born since that time, you and me, we've all been created for the garden, but we've been born into a world of brokenness and consequences, lies and sin. And so we are creatures who long for that beauty and peace. We have a place deep inside us that needs to be filled up, that wants to be satisfied. We will look for pleasure and purpose everywhere we go. It's what we were made for, but we're not in the garden anymore. We're outside and yet we're still longing for it. Of course, we don't call it the garden. We call it fun or pleasure or fulfillment or vacation or whatever, but we want it and we need it because we were created for it. So the problem we're facing is not that we want something or that we want to enjoy life. Fun is not the problem. God is not a cosmic killjoy. Think about it. He gave us taste buds. Why would he do that if he doesn't want us to enjoy things like blueberries or cinnamon, dark chocolate, and ice cream? Jesus is not anti-fun. I can't imagine the disciples would have walked around with him for years if they didn't enjoy being with him. Christianity is not built on boring. It's built on loving God and loving others well. And what's more fun than being with those you love? So the problem isn't fun. The problem is that our ideas and perceptions of what we need and how we find it have been broken and skewed. So much so that God, who he's the source of satisfaction and pleasure, perfection, joy, and fun, he is so often the one we assume is trying to prevent our fun and make life boring, just as the enemy suggested to Eve in the garden. And that's how we get to today's message. I believe in God, but I just want to have fun. God is the one who made us to crave that fun and pleasure, and yet too often we reject him and look to the world around us to find it. So let's talk about that today. Because without God, life may be fun, but it won't be fulfilling. Now, before we get too far, let's land on a definition of fun. According to Webster, fun is enjoyment or amusement. Its synonyms are delight, diversion, distraction, entertainment, pleasure, and recreation. So all of those things wrapped up into three letters, F-U-N, fun. In a 1951 essay, social scientist Martha Wolfenstein called attention to signs of this new morality that was displacing traditional concerns with doing the right thing. And the essay was called The Emergence of Fun Morality. And in it, she makes this comment. 
Instead of feeling guilty for having too much fun, one is inclined to feel ashamed if one does not have enough. So 71 years ago, she noticed that the culture of our country was being driven by fun. People looked around, compared their fun with others, and decided they weren't having enough. And since that time, we've only increased our pursuit of fun. I mean, what are weekends, vacations, and our downtime for, if not for fun? Beyond that, we seem to expect that marriage and work and parenting and friendship, they need to all be fun. That old proverb, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, seems to have shifted to Jack's life goal is play. I may be speaking of extremes, but we've all said or heard someone say, I don't want to miss out. I'm only young once. I'll get serious when I'm older. I just want to party. I'm not hurting anyone else. I just want to have fun. Through time, these attitudes or stages have been called sowing your oats or finding yourself or you do you. And I really think social media is driving this to a degree right now. We post pictures and feel pressured to capture moments so that we can show just how much fun we're having. Like, look, look at me. I'm living it up. When was the last time you just enjoyed a moment or even, oh my goodness, a whole day without taking a picture or video? There's this pressure we feel to have fun and to show everyone how much fun we're having. Now, this idea of fun, it's way older than us or Martha Wolfenstein's observations of 1951. We can go all the way back to the ancient Greek philosophers, and we see the idea of living to pursue pleasure. The word for this is hedonism, and it's defined as the belief that pleasure, or the absence of pain, is the most important principle in determining the morality of a potential course of action. In other words, the creed of hedonists is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. Hedonism sets pleasure and fun as the chief goals in life. Where do we see that in our culture? Where do you see that philosophy playing out in your own life? Is it in living for the weekend when the real fun can start? Is it in planning for an early retirement so you can finally enjoy life? Is it in skipping that class or avoiding that difficult conversation, quitting that job, escaping that relationship? Not because you don't have the capacity to do it well, but because it's more hard than fun and you've decided it's just not worth it. Now hold that thought up next to the garden we just talked about. What was it about the garden that made it perfectly good? What made it a place of peace and wholeness? What was life in, why was life in the garden so fulfilling and restful and fun? It was the presence of the gardener. He designed it. He made it. His glorious presence was the light and life and pleasure and peace and yes, the fun of that garden. So hedonism says pleasure and fun are the chief goals in life. The gardener says that living in his glorious presence is the chief goal of life. In fact, he might say, without me, life may be fun, but it won't be fulfilling. Now, for the rest of our time together, let's chase the fun and let's discover its true cost. Go with me to the New Testament book of 1 John. To find it, just flip or scroll past Hebrews, James, and Peter's letters, and there you'll be. This is a letter written by John to the early church. It's written to a people who lived in the Greco-Roman world where the philosophy of hedonism was birthed and having its heyday. And to these new followers of Jesus, John writes a letter of caution and encouragement. Let's see what he says in chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
John is painting a picture for the church and he is saying to, to them and to us that you can pursue the world and the things in it, those desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, or you can pursue the Father. And remember, the Father is God. He's the creator. He's the gardener. Without him, life may be fun, but it won't be fulfilling and it won't last forever, right? John says this kind of desire and fun that the world has to give, it's not going to last for eternity. So let's examine these three things that John calls out from the world. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Let's spend some time examining them in our context and consider the true cost of fun as life's goal. The first cost is this. Fun is deceptive. The first thing John calls out from the world are the desires of the flesh. And we could call these worldly passions or lusts. We know we were created to find our deepest satisfaction and fun in the garden. Well, God has literally wired our brains to long for this. We are passionate creatures. We have deep desires. And when we find pleasure and when we experience fun, when we laugh uproariously or when we experience that feeling of elation, there's something happening in our brain. We're getting a hit from the dopamine that floods the brain. And it feels great. And we want more. This is what drives that hedonistic pursuit of fun and pleasure. And you know what? The enemy and the world are ready to give you hit after hit after hit in what you eat and drink, in the entertainment you binge, in the likes, reactions, followers on our social feeds, in the unrestrained sexual culture, in the you do you mantra of our day, the stuff you accumulate, we are addicted to fun. We're addicted to making ourselves happy because it feels good. And that pursuit of fun and pleasure makes us run from anything that feels hard or that hurts. My job isn't fun, so I'm gonna quit and look for one that makes me happy. My spouse isn't fun anymore, so I'll look for someone else who fulfills me. That person in my life, mm, just too hard, I'm gonna cancel them. And what we do is we end up trying to weed out everything that doesn't feel good so that we can build a life of fun and satisfaction. And the problem is that it's built on a lie. It's like building on sand. And it's the same lie that Eve heard in the garden. The lie suggests that God isn't able to satisfy your needs. The lie that more life, more fun will be found somewhere, anywhere without him. It's the lie that led Eve to pick that fruit, and it leads us to sin also. Ignatius, an early church follower, defines sin this way. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is my only my deepest happiness. God made you with a core desire for happiness, pleasure, and fun. And he knows that the only true source is himself and his glorious presence. Remember the garden. This pursuit of fun is deceptive. Commercials, online advertising, social media feeds, influencers, all those things that entice your eyes, that stir the lust, and you don't show the consequences. No one advertises the guilt and the loneliness. No one advertises the shame, the memories, the hangovers, etc. They all promise to give you the garden but they cannot deliver on the promise without the gardener. I like how John Mark Comer describes this in his book, Live No Lies. He says, desire, use, repeat. Every time we sow to the flesh, or put another way, every time we give in to our flesh's desire to sin, we plant something in the soil of our hearts, which then begins to take root, grow, and eventually yield the harvest of a deformed nature desire, use, repeat. The problem with satisfying the desires of the flesh is that they are never satisfied. Not by sex, not by drugs, not by endless hours of movies or video games, not by Reese's Cups, not by my checking out a stack of books from the library. Whatever your desire or your lust is, and we all have something, it will not be satisfied by that thing or that place or that person. 
The fact that the desire returns so quickly again and again should remind you that the commercial's lying, the Twitter feed's lying. You will not be more, do more, or have more if you indulge this desire again and again. Desire, use, repeat. It's a never-ending cycle of dissatisfaction, and John warns the church against it. Without God, life may be fun, but it won't be fulfilling. Instead, we're going to become something twisted and distorted, much like Gollum. If you've read or seen the movies of The Lord of the Rings, you'll remember him. He makes that awful gull sound in his throat. He had once been a hobbit named Smeagol, but then he found the ring, and he called it my precious. And his lust for it drove him to kill his friend. It drove him from his home. It stole his name and identity. Ultimately, it destroyed him mentally, physically, and emotionally, eventually taking his life. The desire of his flesh, that ring, it was too great. It consumed him from within. And sin masquerading as fun is deceptive. Let me say that again. Sin masquerading as fun is deceptive. It feels so good in the moment. And you believe you found this garden. But what you've discovered is destruction. And that's the first cost of fun. Praise God, that doesn't have to be our destiny. Jesus came and he died so the desires of the flesh could be put to death so that we would not have to be enslaved by the deception of fun. Jesus, he's the true way to find the garden. Let me finish that John Mark Comer quote I began a minute ago to close this point. Desire, use, repeat. Thankfully, the same is true of the Spirit. Every time you sow to the Spirit and invest the resources of your mind and body into nurturing your inner man or woman's connection to the Spirit of God, you plant something deep, which over time takes root and bears the fruit of a Christ-like character. The presence of God, that's where true fun is found. Remember the garden. The second cost of fun is this. Fun is temporary. The next thing on John's list are the desires of the eyes, and we can call these worldly possessions. We see something appealing and we desire to have it. It's so interesting to read this in John's letter, knowing that there were far less, there was far less stuff in his day, right? If you lived it all before the internet, you kind of get this, right? You didn't see so much stuff all the time. You couldn't buy that shiny thing while you were eating your morning cereal. You actually had to go somewhere. Well, unless of course you received magazines or catalogs. Even now, my kids don't know that things exist until Target sends a Christmas mailer with 100 toys in it. You know what I'm talking about, right? When I was a kid, it was the JCPenney wish book. And you start flipping those pages and your eyes light up because you're seeing what you don't have and you didn't even know existed, but suddenly you know. You just know that if you could have it, you'd be so happy. These are the desires of the eyes. And it's made so much easier in this era of online shopping. And when you do go to an actual brick and mortar store, I mean, you'll see this played out. Have you shopped with a toddler lately? Actually, it never ends. Just at some point, we stop throwing ourselves down in the middle of the aisle, screaming and demanding we get what we want. But that desires of the eyes, that remains in us. I see it. I want it. I need it. Like Comer said, desire, use, repeat. We have an insatiable desire for more, for bigger, for better. Just by being Americans, we're among the wealthiest people in the world, yet we believe we need more, and more dangerous still, we believe we deserve more. But go back to the garden. Everything was good and perfect. Eve had all that she needed to the nth degree. I mean, she never had to settle for strawberries that weren't quite right, and Adam, he was a hunk, I'm sure. Not to mention, God came to walk with them every day, and yet she saw what she could not have, and she wanted it. Let me read from Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If only I had. This is where so many of us are stuck today in this endless cycle of seeing, wanting, needing that next thing that will satisfy our craving for more and our craving for fun. So that vacation at Disney, most fun ever, book it. The latest tech gadget, gotta have it. That Insta influencer's trendy outfit, order it. Trending Netflix series, binge it. And you go all in, you indulge your craving, you seize that thing, that experience, you tweet it, you snap it, you share it, you filter it with all the right poses and words and accessories and whatever extra you can give it to make it really the most fun ever. And then what? Is that it? Are you fulfilled? Have you achieved ultimate happiness? What happened to Adam and Eve? Suddenly where there was no lack or imperfection before, they saw nakedness and they saw shame. And where there was eternal good, they traded it for temporary indulgence. There was this guy who was like this in Jesus' time. I, I think he's walking around today in cool sneakers and the latest iPhone, but back then maybe it was just his sandals and toga that made him stand out. We don't get a name. We're just told in Matthew 19 that he's a young man. He comes to find Jesus and he asks a question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus tells him, keep the commandments. And the young man says that he's done this. And so he says, well, what do I still lack? And Jesus, knowing this rich young man is seeking more, yet looking in all the wrong places, answers him. If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Wow, there it is. Dude, you've got the answer you've been looking for. It's the secret of your happiness. It's the key to abundant life. Isn't that what we all want? It's not fun. It's not stuff. It's giving all that up and living for the eternal stuff, following Jesus. So did he get it? Did the young man do what Jesus said? He didn't. Matthew tells us that the young man walked away from Jesus. He decided he needed stuff right now more than he needed eternal life. And he was sad. I'm sure it made Jesus sad. Makes me sad because it is so sad. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Fun is temporary. All the fun stuff and experiences that you accumulate are temporary. Moth and rust, destroy, thieves steal, kids break stuff, accidents happen, vacations get rained out, illness interrupts plans, credit cards need to be paid. Whatever it is that ends it, the fact is that everything your eyes desire in this world, all the fun to be found here is temporary. It does not last. It cannot last. And you were not meant to satisfy your craving for more and better in those things. Without him, life may be fun, but it won't be fulfilling. So what will fulfill? What will last? Remember the garden. Remember that we were made by the gardener for the garden, for his presence that brings us wholeness and peace and fulfillment and fun. And what were the lasting pleasures of that garden for Adam and Eve? It was relationship. They were in perfect relationship with God the Father. They were in perfect relationship with one another, and they were in perfect relationship with the garden he created. Now, we're living in the shadow of Genesis 3. We're living in the broken world of once, the sinful world of desires. But it's temporary and it's passing away. But God is eternal, and you know what? So are we. And even now, as we wait for the garden of heaven, we can choose to pursue God and pursue the eternal things rather than pursue the stuff that the world puts in front of us. We can learn to say no to those things and to treasure relationship with Him, treasure relationship and love for one another, those things that will last forever. So fun is deceptive and fun is temporary. And the third cost is this, fun is not enough. 
The final thing on John's list is the pride of life. In other words, worldly success. Years ago in a 60 Minutes interview, quarterback Tom Brady asks, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Well, Tom Brady, goat, greatest of all time that you are, there is something greater. There is someone greater. And football or corporate achievement or social influence will never be enough to satisfy the craving for more and for greater. You can go and run and learn and earn and strive until you reach the pinnacle of your profession or the top of your class or that seven-figure income. And if that's all you were chasing, it may have been fun, but it won't be fulfilling. Nothing in this world that you can take pride in is enough to satisfy your heart's deep desire. I think we see this not only in the pursuit of achievement, but in our clinging to the things that give us meaning and purpose. We become defined by what we achieve, right? Making it very difficult to let it go or to give it up. And when we do encounter Jesus, it's so hard to walk away from that identity and allow him to give us a new identity. But we cannot be both a child of God and a child of achievement. That rich young man had achieved great wealth, right? Who would he be if he gave it all away? And it's like this for many athletes. I mean, like Tom Brady, he retired and unretired within like a month. Now, I can't say for sure why, but he's certainly not the first. In a very, very small way, I kind of get that. I played volleyball from seventh grade through college, and I achieved a lot. I was an all-state player. I have a gold medal for winning a state championship. I was a national champion in college and an All-American. It's very difficult to achieve all of that and then just have it all end. And as prepared as I was to be done because my college coaches were Christians who elevated Jesus and relationship above playing ball, even with great mentors and an eternal perspective on life, it was still difficult to just be Sarah, daughter of the king. Achievement in our lifetimes, it feels good. Work, school, sports, hobbies, online gaming, relentlessly pursuing great deals and sales, planning the perfect vacations, perfectly clipping every blade of grass in your lawn, or organizing your kids' lives so that they'll have perfect childhoods. Whatever it is that is your pride of life, I promise it will not be fun because you're gonna hit a bump in the road or you'll come to the end of the road or you'll climb as high as the ladder goes and, and then what? What remains? Like Tom Brady and that rich young man, eventually we all wonder if there might not be something more. And the problem is not that our jobs or our kids or hobbies can't be fun or can't give us enjoyment while we live. The problem is that they cannot replace our longing for the garden. Put another way, we all want to build a great kingdom for ourselves, but we need a king and it can't be us. Our kingdoms will die with us. Only his will remain. Many years ago, a wise pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about choosing the kingdom of Jesus. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And many years before that, the Apostle Paul wrote, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Bonhoeffer and Paul had this in common. They both died. Both were killed by evil empires. Both were ready for it because they chose Jesus and they knew the gardener. And he had promised that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What indeed do we gain in this world by pursuing fun apart from God? Without him, life may be fun, but it won't be fulfilling. We were made to find all our joy, satisfaction, and fun in him. In this life and in death, his garden, his kingdom is eternal. I pray that every single one of us would come to the end of our search for fun in the things of this temporary world, those desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
because they're unable to satisfy. And that we would find ourselves at the feet of Jesus, realizing that our greatest joy and our deepest satisfaction, our eternal fun is bound up and found in him, in his presence, in his kingdom. Just two simple next steps as we close today. First, answer this question for yourself. Which garden am I growing in my life? Is it a garden sown with the seeds of this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life? Or are you allowing the gardener to sow his seeds? And that leads me to the second next step. I encourage you to find your tailor daily and spend some time discovering more about who the gardener is and how much God wants you to find joy, satisfaction, and fun in his presence. We've got all you need to take this step. Just visit whoisgrace.com read. Now let me close with this ancient prayer of the church. From all the deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil, good Lord, deliver us. Amen.